Hi, I'm James Verdeer, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, and sometimes in between, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. And I wanted to start off today with a quick announcement about the show itself. Uh, so this episode marks the first in what we're going to be calling our impact series. The idea behind it is to tell the stories of how research finds its way from publications, so the kinds of things that we've been talking about, and then into our lives. So this will be things like medicine, commercial products, laws, conservation policies, and so on. So the format of the show is going to be the same, so still mostly small interviews, and the Impact Series will appear in the same places that you'll find the rest of the episodes. Uh, and it's also worth noting that this will appear in addition to our regular content, so they're not replacing anything. So with no further ado, let's get into that first episode right now. For this one, I talked to Dr. Crystal Eisenhower, who's the CEO of Aperiomics, which is a life sciences company headquartered in Virginia. I actually got to visit there last summer, and they showed me around. It was a great facility. But they're a company that uses something that's called shotgun on metagenomic sequencing to identify infections, and especially infections that aren't easily found using traditional means. I'll let Dr. Eisenhower explain. Dr. Eisenhower, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Okay, so just to get us started, I was hoping you could answer a question that I'm sure is high on the mind of everyone listening, and that is what exactly is shotgun metagenomic next generation sequencing? Sure. Uh, shotgun metagenomic next generation sequencing is a lot of words. <laughs> Um, to to describe the DNA sequencing process that we use. There are uh, different varieties of DNA sequencing, and so we, we want to use the most robust, the most comprehensive sequencing, and so that's what uh, shotgun metagenomic sequencing is. So what we do is we take the DNA out of a sample, and we chop it into small bits, and we blast into the DNA in a somewhat random fashion. Um, think of it as you know, shooting a shotgun and how the, the shotgun pellets um, kind of splay out and, and go in a random fashion and sequence across multiple parts of the genome in, in a somewhat random fashion to give us broad coverage of the DNA so that we have a more specific identification for what, what it is we're looking for. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. And, and what kinds of things are you looking for? We are looking for every known bacteria, virus, parasite, and fungus. So that equates to nearly 40,000 microorganisms at the moment. Okay, so what you're doing is you're taking a sample, say, from a patient or something like that, and then looking for 40,000 different things within that sample. Correct. How long does that take? It, it sounds like a, you know, sort of an enormously you know, comprehensive effort. It is. And there's, there's two components to what we're doing. There's a wet lab component and then there's a data analytics component. So the wet lab component of this takes um, a number of days to complete. So we need to receive the sample, remove the DNA from the sample in a high quality fashion, do quality checks and controls along the way. Um, we then need to prepare this, the DNA sample to be sequenced by the Illumina DNA sequencer. Um, then we need to actually put the sample onto the DNA sequencer, and that takes um, two to three days, depending on how many samples we have on the instrument at that time. So it's a multi-day process in the wet lab side. Once we get to the raw data, um, so the, the sequencer, the output of the, the DNA sequencer is a very large, very complex raw data file. It can be up to a terabyte of data for just one sample. 
that raw data file then goes into the data analytics process, which is the second, the second part of what we do. That process takes about one hour to process the millions of fragments of DNA that are generated and create identities that are then reported to the healthcare provider. Okay, so um, you know, at the risk of grossly oversimplifying, which is something I tend to do, uh, the way that this would work would be I would, uh, you know, through my physician, send you a, a blood sample, say, and you would search through it and then tell me, you know, kind of what was growing in my blood that shouldn't be there, perhaps. Well, what was not necessarily growing in your blood, but what's present in the blood sample that we received? Yes. And then what? And then is that is that then used to diagnose illnesses and things like that? It can be. So a number of, of healthcare providers that we work with use that information to, to advise them on a diagnostic process. So, for example, if you have mycobacterium tuberculosis in the blood sample, you, that's a very clear case where mycobacterium tuberculosis does not belong in a human body at any level at any spot. So um, that would be something that if the patient presents symptoms consistent with the finding, those would be information points that could be used to create a diagnosis. Okay. And how does that method of getting to, you know, a diagnosis or, or, you know, learning something about what's, what is present in the blood or, you know, any other example, you know, how does, how does that differ from traditional methods? You know, what's the, the newness of this approach and, and how does it stand to sort of upend traditional practice? Sure. So traditional testing comes in a, a, a few different flavors. Um, the first is a microscope. So looking through a microscope um, at high magnification to identify a microorganism based on how it appears to the, to the eye. Um, obviously, that is not going to be as specific as looking at the DNA because there are bacteria that have very similar shapes and very similar sizes. The next type of, of diagnostic tool that's been used in the past is culture. Um, so collecting a sample from a patient and putting that onto a culture dish of some sort. There are dozens of different kinds of media that can be used to culture patient samples. But the reality is somewhere around 90% of microorganisms cannot grow in culture at all. So we've gone from microscopy, which is very limited based on what you can visually see, to culture, which is better. Um, but again, we can only see what can grow in the culture dish, which is a, a fraction of what is actually possible. And then um, some of the newer technologies include looking for, for antigens or proteins that coat the surface of the microorganisms um, and using antibody-based technologies to uh, identify those antigens, uh, identify the presence of antigens or the surface proteins in a particular patient sample. So the, again, we're, we're stepping closer and closer to a more sensitive and a more specific answer. Um, but when you're working with proteins, there's a lot of um, complicated folding and shapes that the proteins can can find themselves into. And so it's it, 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 it's certainly better than culture and it's better than microscopy, but we still have a long way to go to get a sensitive and a specific answer. Um, some of the newer technologies include things like PCR. Um, PCR looks at the DNA. Um, specifically a very short fragment of DNA, usually a few hundred base pairs long. And the, the, the 
test is designed so that it will create hundreds of thousands of copies of that one tiny fragment of DNA, and then you look for that DNA fragment to determine if something is present or not. And so those, those assays are very sensitive and very specific. The challenge is you can only identify what you're looking for. So you have to know what you're looking for and you have to design the test to be able to find that one specific thing that you're looking for. Um, kind of advancing forward a little bit further into the sequencing world, um, one of the older sequencing technologies is called 16S sequencing, where it's kind of a combination of PCR and sequencing where you're looking at the 16S gene of DNA, which is a few hundred base pairs long, and you're sequencing that at, 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 at in terms of millions of, of copies of the gene, and then differentiating the bacteria using that one gene. And again, we're, we're, we're advancing forward, and that's going to do a much better job than PCR, because then you don't necessarily have to know what you're looking for. However, the limitation is you can't identify fungi, viruses, or parasites, because they don't have 16S genes. And the um, resolution you get is not perfect. So it's very difficult to get a very specific answer down to the species or strain level for a bacteria using 16F sequencing. So then we're stepping into metagenomic sequencing or shotgun metagenomic sequencing, which is what we do. And we're looking at a broad spectrum of the DNA. And what that allows us to do is to, to get a much more sensitive answer and a much more specific answer. And we don't have to know what we're looking for. And we aren't limited to only bacteria. Okay, now in, in, in your findings, you know, when you run the sample, do the wet lab portion, do the analytic portion, you know, I'm assuming that you, the results for pretty much anybody and, and pretty much any tissue sample is going to be that there's a lot of stuff there. How do you know and how do you identify if there's a problem, um, you know, and, and what it is? What kinds of things are you looking for in addition to the presence of something, um, you know, in a sample? Yes, and certainly the, the human body is comprised of six pounds of mi microorganisms. So in virtually every sample, uh, in any, virtually any part of the human body, there will be some level of bacteria. In something like a blood sample, we, we expect there to be very little microorganisms circulating in the blood of somebody who um, is healthy or even somebody who's, who's not um, gravely ill with sepsis. Um, these would be you know, very small amounts of bacteria, but, but they do, they do, we do see some bacteria even in people who are completely healthy. Um, in something like a fecal sample, we're going to see hundreds and hundreds of different kinds of bacteria. So your point is, is a very good one. We have three logic points we walk through um, when we're looking at the data. The first is, is there something in the sample that does not belong in a human being? So something like mycobacterium tuberculosis, something like Lyme disease, something like rickettsia. Um, those are things that they don't belong in a human body. And if they're there, they are very highly likely to be causing clinical disease. The second logic point is, is what we're seeing in the wrong part of the body. So an example could be E. coli. E. coli is a normal part of the human intestinal tract, but we don't want to see it circulating in the blood. We don't want to see it in the urinary tract. We don't want to see it in the respiratory tract. So if we see something like E. coli outside of the intestinal tract, 
um, and their symptoms consistent with an infection, then that could be um, you know, a, a, an important clue to what's causing those symptoms. And then the third, the third logic point is, is it in the right amount? So again, E. coli is normal in the intestinal tract. What we know by looking at hundreds of healthy fecal samples is that E. coli should be 5% or below in abundance. So if we have a patient that has 30% E. coli and has symptoms of GI infection, that is um, cause or indicative of a, a traditional infection. So, so those are the three logic points we, we walk through to help put context around the information because we do know that there are going to be a lot of microorganisms in many of the samples that we receive. Okay, and, and in just a moment, I hope we can you know walk through the um, aperiomics story itself and you know kind of how the how the company was formed. Uh, but first, I thought it might be helpful to you know kind of go through a, a, a patient example, uh, and that could be somebody who's who's real or imagined. But you know, if you could just sort of walk us through you know the process of how someone would f- happen to you know have one of their samples run through your process. What, how does that typically work? Sure, um, and I'll go through a, a, a case study. So um, this, this case is a, a, a female patient. I lives in West Virginia. She's 68 years old. She's been in chronic pain for decades. And she's been, you know, to many doctors. She's undergone many treatments, had a lot of tests done. Um, she's been diagnosed with Lyme disease. She's been diagnosed with arthritis from Lyme disease. And what her symptoms are, are, are very severe joint pain. Um, and her spine is, is starting to curve. So her, she and her doctor had learned about our testing. And um, they decided to order our blood test. We sent a collection kit for plasma, blood plasma to the, to the doctor's office. The patient came in and they drew a blood sample that blood sample was then sent back to us and we ran it through our process. So we, we took that blood plasma sample, we pulled all the DNA out, we did deep metagenomic sequencing on that sample. Um, we generated around 30 million DNA fragments, sequence fragments from that sample. And then we ran those 30 million DNA fragments through our an- analytical process, matched it against our database and then generated a report that went back to the doctor. Um, On that report, we identified four bacteria. One of them was quite high. It was about 30% of the sample, and that bacteria was Mycobacterium tuberculosis. So what we then did was we we had a consultation with the doctor um, so that they could understand how we arrived at that answer and, um, you know, we had a lot of discussions about quality and, and additional checks and to make sure that you know, the information we were reporting out was correct. He ordered confirmatory testing, which was positive, um, both by chest x-ray and by another diagnostic test. Um, and then, um, so he made the diagnosis that she had extra pulmonary tuberculosis, and um, she's now in her final month of treatment. Oh my goodness! So is this a case in which you know she she didn't present as you know being sort of what one would expect as being traditionally tubercular? She wasn't correct. Pri- her primary complaint wasn't you know um, coughing and blood in the sputum. It was it was right this other stuff. Right, and so what we think happened was that she had. Um, an exposure to tuberculosis at some point earlier in her life. 
and you know her body was able to you know fight the infection and it became more of a latent tuberculosis than a, an active pulmonary tuberculosis where you know it's the traditional coughing up of blood tuberculosis is is widely known to move outside of the lungs and so extrapulmonary tuberculosis infection is something that we used to see a lot of because we used to have a lot more people living with tuberculosis for many, many years. And so um, there's actually a condition called TB spine, where the spine curves. So those were some of the initial flags that um, we discussed with her healthcare provider, that this was not presenting as typical pulmonary tuberculosis, but it was presenting as extrapulmonary tuberculosis. So it sounds like this technology has the you know potential to capture and and help diagnose illnesses that are you know otherwise sort of these you know stone cold who done it medical mysteries where you know someone's fatigued and you know having some sort of spinal issue and you would just never think or you know most of us would never think hey it's tuberculosis but this can kind of give you a way of finding out what's actually going on. It can, and, and that's the beauty of this technology. We're able to screen for everything that's known instead of looking for things one at a time. Um, because she had spent you know, decades looking for things one at a time, and there, you know, she just never had any, any progress. She never had any improvement of the symptoms despite going through numerous treatments. Yeah, and I think everyone who's you know ever had any sort of uh, mysterious medical condition will sympathize with that process of you know check this one thing, you know wait a month and then check the next thing. It seems sort of never ending. Right. You know, I'm I'm wondering a little bit how much time and, and effort has to go into this computationally to you know make that analytic step happen because it sounds like you're talking about genomes and I know that uh, you know they're a large piece of data and then we're talking about 40,000 different microorganisms which is a large number um, and then we're talking about you know wh whatever would be in a sample um, it sounds like there's a lot of computation going on how does that work there is a tremendous amount of computation um, so we've built we've built an analytical platform. So a software platform, it's dozens of algorithms that sort through this data in a stepwise fashion and you know, do everything from removing the human DNA from the sample because we're not interested in what's going on with the human at this point. We're, we're interested in what's going on with everything that's not a human um, to um, giving the data uh, a unique score um, we, we prioritize the information in the sample that is unique. So, you know, theoretically, the mycobacterium tuberculosis and the human, there are D fragments of DNA um, in those two organisms that are the same. And so if you're looking at that part of the genome of each organism, you're gonna say those are the same thing, but clearly they're not. So we prioritize the unique information in the sample, and so that gets analyzed first. Um, and then, that gets aligned to our database, which includes the complete genomes of every known and sequenced bacteria, virus, parasite, and fungus. And it has to match up to those genomes perfectly. And it has to match up to those genomes X number of times. And it has to be across a diverse part of the, the genome. So we have all of these, these checkpoints and all of these logics that you know, all of this data has to fit into these, these criteria exactly in order for us to make a positive call. And so just to give you an example, there were 30 million DNA fragments analyzed for the sample, 270 
fragments matched perfectly to mycobacterium tuberculosis. Okay, so then that gives you enough to know pretty much with you know complete certainty that you've found what you think you found. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, let's step back and talk about you know the story of aperiomics a little bit. How did you get to where you are now? You know, what's the what's the pathway from um, an idea to uh, you know offering this as a service? Sure. So in 2013. Um, my academic technical co-founders, two of them were at George Washington University and one of them at Boston University, they got together, they had been working on a project called Pathoscope, and they wanted to wrap a company around this, this idea they had, and, and that was to be able to identify every microorganism in a single test. And so in 2013, they, they got a small business grant um, they went through the NSF I-Corps program, and they quickly learned that they did not want to start a company on their own. They wanted to find somebody to come in and help them you know, take this, this academic work and turn it into something that had real market um, utility and real market potential. So I, had, I happened to have just sold my first company in 2013. And I was networking through Virginia Bio and connected with Keith Crandall, um, one of my, my academic technical co-founders. And, you know, the timing and the, the skill sets were, you know, in perfect alignment. And so they recruited me in as their founding CEO. My background is in infectious disease. Um, their background is computational biology, bioinformatics, and statistics. So it was really a nice mix of um, skill sets to come in. Um, and so, you know, my job was to come in and take this, this academic idea and turn it into something that, you know, initially when, we, when they first envisioned the company, they, they were thinking of it more in terms of um, veterinary applications um, or food testing or non-human applications because they, they weren't sure about the regulatory pathway that it would need to take for human testing. And so when, when I joined the team, um, one of the things I advised was that the more, the more profound application for the technology would be for human testing. And I, I had experience in the human testing side, so I was able you know, to, to guide the, the technology towards human testing purposes. So you know, my job has been you know, to take this idea and you know, to honor the vision that my, my my academic co-founders had for this technology and, and really help them get this, this, this idea and this technology into the world so that people can actually benefit from, from this, this really great idea that we started with. Okay. And can we talk about that regulatory piece a little bit? Because, you know, I, I think this is something that I, I certainly don't know much about, and I, I doubt our listeners will as well. What's the process like for a test such as yours? You know, we have this uh, idea among us late folks who, you know, have an awareness that if you want to put a medicine out on the market, that's an incredibly difficult FDA um, hurdle to reach. But for a technology such as yours, you know, how does that work? What are the regulatory thresholds? You know, what do you have to do in order to start performing this kind of test? So there's there's two pathways, and and we're well I, for us we're taking them in tandem. So the the way that we entered the market with the technology two and a half years ago was as a laboratory developed test. So while our technology is really focused around the data analytics, the database, and the artificial intelligence that we've built, it, it was clear to us that the market for 
a software tool was pretty small and we wanted to really have a, a big impact. So we wanted to create a full service so that people that didn't have access to sequencing technologies could still access this, this you know, advanced testing. So we put together a full service offering where we you know, do everything from sending out a, a collection kit to sending out a report and everything in between and put that under the, the category of a laboratory developed test. That's um, a designation that CMS holds um, and they oversee the CLIA guidelines for clinical laboratory standards. So that's the regulatory pathway we are under right now. So all of our wet lab testing occurs in a CLIA CAP facility. Um, and then on the software side, we, we operate everything at a medical device quality standard. As we mature as a company and as this technology you know, gets more traction, we'll be shifting more from a laboratory developed test to a software package. And as we do that, FDA will be required to approve the actual software before we deliver the software as a service. So we're kind of in this tandem process right now where we started with, with CMS and CLIA, and then over the next year, we're going to start working on the FDA 510K process to get the software package approved through FDA so that can be delivered independently of the complete service. Okay, so and then, and then that would I assume allow you to to reach a little further out into yes. you know facility is that is that primarily geared toward you know hospitals or research institutions that have their own lab facilities? Yes, and also international institutions. So we we do a little bit of work internationally, but obviously the logistics of shipping patient samples overseas is is costly. Um, not always easy to do, not always possible even in some countries. So so being able to deliver the software as a service gives us a much greater market size. Um, so, you know, government laboratories like the state labs, um, public health labs, um, larger hospitals and institutions, um, international sites that are able to do the, the sequencing in country um, then can can utilize the software remotely. Which then allows you, I would assume, to, you know, kind of um, rely on your primary core competency, which is, you know, in the development of the software, um, yes. rather than the the wet lab f uh, portion. Correct. And you know, where is your wet lab facility? I don't think we visited that one on the tour. So we we work with a couple of strategic partners that provide wet lab services for us, and then um, we and, and actually just since you were here, our wet lab is is we now have our sequencer on site. So we're in the process of uh, doing all of the validation work to get the CLIA certification so we can begin doing internal testing in addition to working with strategic partners. Is that sequencer the, uh, the big wooden box that was uh, you know, mysteriously in the corner of the office when we visited? Yes, that was the giant wooden box. That's fascinating. That, that was very neat to see. And, and, and thank you again for showing us around that day. My last question would be, you know, what's next for Aperiomics? Um, you know, are there any th are any new things on the horizon that you haven't told us yet about, um, or or anything along those lines? There are um, the the next biggest thing is so one of the challenges we've 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 faced is when we send a report to a healthcare provider, a lot of times they've never heard of the the microorganisms we identify, and they don't know what to do with this information. 
And so the next big um, thing that that's coming is we will be, um, or we are developing artificial intelligence around the reports to give it context so that it's easier for the healthcare provider to understand, you know, what is this organism? Does it belong in the human body? You know, does it cause, is it known to cause human disease? You know, are there treatments in the literature that have successfully treated this, this, this microorganism? So, so that piece is coming um, and we're, we're going to start rolling out the first wave of that in the next few weeks. The next big thing that's coming is um, we're doing, uh, we're going to be adding in the human genetics components. So in addition to um, identifying the microorganisms that are in the sample, we'll also be doing a screen of um, human mutations that could be linked to a susceptibility to infection or um, could be an explanation of the patient's symptoms um, if infection is ruled out. So, so that's another piece that will be coming online over the next um, 18 months or so. Oh, well, that's fascinating. And we'll certainly look forward to hearing more. Uh, Dr. Eisenhower, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. I appreciate your time. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences, and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.